From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bobby Bascom. Invasive species, fire, and climate change are permanently changing Patagonia. We really have to assume that the conditions of the future are going to be different. We cannot have the romantic idea of going back to our 19th century landscape because it's, it's a romantic view which is not going to be very um, resilient to the future conditions. Also, the hit Netflix movie Don't Look Up as an allegory for climate change. Don't Look Up is what the forces of inaction, polluters and those promoting their agenda, politicians and front groups and conservative media outlets, they don't want us to look up. Something that's plainly evident, all we have to do is use our two eyes. Well, that's true with the climate crisis, isn't it? That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bobby Bascom. Out-of-control wildfires are raging in Patagonia on the tip of South America in both Argentina and Chile. It's been blazing hot during their summer, with the central part of Argentina reaching a record high of 113 degrees Fahrenheit in mid-January. And on January 12th, Argentina's federal government declared a one-year fire emergency because of the ongoing situation. Though the native vegetation for much of the region is a wet forest, major forest fires have become much more frequent in recent decades as the climate changes. Thomas Kitzberger is a professor of ecology at the National University of Comahue in Bariloche, Argentina. That's in the foothills of the Andes, not far from the recent forest fires, and he joins me now to discuss. Welcome to Living on Earth, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. So can you please describe this region of Patagonia for our listeners who maybe haven't been there? Well, we are in a, in a forested region. These are southern temperate forests. These are evergreen trees very different from the North American coniferous forest that strive along the Andes on both sides, from on Chile and in Argentina. And they are basically fed by the rains that come from the Pacific Ocean, generating a different kinds of forests like rainforests, southern conifer forests, shrublands, and finally the Patagonian steppe, which is a grassland. There is an important uh, rain shadow effect of the Andes on this Pacific moisture that comes in it's just uh, very similar to what happens maybe in Washington state, where you have the cascades and the rain shadow. It's very similar. So it's, it's like, a, like a mirror of the northern hemisphere, but with very different species, species that are not really very adapted to fire. So it, it, is, a, it is a fascinating uh, region of the world. Well, it sounds just as stunning. Uh, it sounds amazingly beautiful. But what has it been like there recently in terms of heat and, and fires? Yeah, we are witnessing now very strong changes due to climate change. We are witnessing um, a 50-year-long uh, trend in drying and in warming. We are experiencing hot spells. We are experiencing thunderstorms, which were not very common in this region in the past. Mortality of forests, even without fire, trees die off due to drought, and of course, very large fires in recent times. So we are very concerned about those changes. How natural is fire in this region of Patagonia? What do you see in, in um, you know, the longer history? Well, the long history what tells us that the, the fire was a disturbance in the forest, but it was not a frequent disturbance in the forest. So uh, there could be eventual lightnings, there could be eventual uh, volcanic eruptions. We have a lot of uh, volcanoes here. And there could be also indigenous people burning the forest. But uh, these forest fires were generally smaller uh, and less frequent. So if you go back in time and you reconstruct fire history of, of the wet forest, you could have fires every maybe 500 years. And this is completely compatible with the existence of these kinds of forests, these kinds of species that are not very well adapted to fire. But still, if the fire is not very frequent, very large trees, you know, a mature forest can withstand fire because the, the trees are very large and some of the trees survive the fire and they create a, a new generation of trees that can strive until the next fire every 300, 400, 500 years. The problem is that under new climatic scenarios, the forest will burn more frequently if the ignition is there. And the ignition is there now. 
you know, because there are more people and there are more lightnings. So tell me more about that. Why is there more lightning now in Patagonia? What's going on with climate change that's contributing to just the right conditions for more fire? Well, this is something we have detected in the past 10 years. Uh, we have uh, first looked at the number of uh, lightning ignited fires that were reported in historical documents. And uh, we have noticed that since the 1980s, 1990s, the number of lightning ignited fires that were reported has tripled compared to the previous period, from the 1950s to the 1970s, which is correlated with increases in temperature of the summer. So we have, we're having hotter summers, drier summers, and summers that are more prone to thunderstorms. And these thunderstorms are uh, related to a change in the circulation of the um, subtropical air masses that come from the Amazon and from northern Argentina, from Paraguay. And they are funneled in from the north to the plains of the Andes, as far south as Bariloche and even further south. A thing that previously this climatic pattern was not very common because in general what we have is westerly circulation of wind. And the westerly wind is generally very stable and does not produce lightning. So when you have a Pacific storm coming in, it doesn't carry lightning. Whereas when you have a northerly wind coming in, it is very unstable air. So And this produces generally these dry thunderstorms, which are so dangerous in a region because they don't produce much rain, but they produce lightning. And if that combines with a drought, the probability of ignition of a lightning that it ignites a fire is very high. Yeah, it seems like a, a very mm -hmm. good scenario for creating a fire. Yeah. And I understand that there is a monoculture of, of pine trees that were planted there decades ago for timber. How do they factor into the fires that you're experiencing? Yeah, it's not a very good combination because these plantations were promoted by the Argentinian government during the 1970s and 1980s, and they were promoted by subsidies. So the owners of the land were given money to plant pine trees, Ponderosa pine, Radiata, Pinus radiata, pseudo sugar, this Douglas fir, lodgepole pine, all these trees that are northern hemisphere conifers, generally from North America. And you already know these are very flammable species. They have high content of resins, of volatiles in the leaves. They burn at very high intensities. So these species were planted for many, many years in Patagonia, and uh, many of these plantations were later abandoned. Unfortunately, they were abandoned because this is bad policy. There was not really a market for this wood. The wood was not very high quality. So the plantations were abandoned because the money was already cashed in. The government paid for the seedlings. They didn't pay for the, for the mature trees. So once the plantation was established, the plantation was not taken care of. There was no uh, thinning. So these trees are loaded with dry fuels, and the other problem is that some of these species are very invasive to our native ecosystems. So what has happened during the last three to four decades is an active invasion of conifer trees into native ecosystems. And these trees are capable of establishing under the canopy of the native trees. And they create what we call novel ecosystems. These are novel combinations of native trees with conifer trees. And the problem is when a fire sweeps through that invaded native ecosystem, the dominant tree after the fire sweeps through the forest will be the exotic conifer. You know, I've read personal accounts of people that, that survived the fires there, and they say these massive pine trees just went up, you know, like that. Just in, in minutes, they were just in flames and, and practically uh, yeah. um, gone, you know, immediately. Yes. It was just, they mm -hmm. burned so quickly. Yeah, they have adapted for millions of years to burn very hot, the, the conifers, but they, at the same time, they have created their own uh, adaptations to, to repopulate the area afterwards. So the serotinous cones, which opens with the heat, and many other adaptations like very thick barks to resist the fire and so on. And some of the fire policies that are being applied in Patagonia come from the fire science ecology 
School of North America. And the problem is that you cannot translate really the, the policy of fire of North America to Patagonia because the species behave very differently. For instance, in North America, the more time you, you wait to a forest to mature, the more flammable the forest will be. And this has created the idea of prescribed burning to reduce the flammability of the forest. Here in Patagonia, it's absolutely the reverse. When you burn a forest, you create a shrubland, and the shrubland is more flammable than the forest. So prescribed burning would create the, the opposite effect here in, in our forest than in a coniferous forest. Professor Kitzberger, to what extent is Patagonia experiencing a new normal in climate? What do climate scientists tell us we should be expecting in that region in the coming decades? We are already in a new normal, and the global change models all agree that the region will experience at least a reduction in 20 to 30 percent in rainfall. Mm. And this is not for the most pessimistic scenarios, but for uh, very probable emission scenarios, and an increase in temperatures of 2 to 3 degrees uh, Celsius. And our fire probabilities or frequency could increase 2 or 2 threefold during the mid-21st century and 6 to 8-fold during the late 21st century, which is really disastrous for our ecosystems. How does it feel for you as a scientist to be living there and documenting these changes and at the same time see so little action, you know, to get to the root cause of things? I started studying a fire in this region 35 years ago. I was very young. And the first reaction of people when I was saying uh, I was studying fire in this region is, why are you studying fire? There is no fire in this region. And the perception of fire is very dependent on the events. I don't know if that happens in North America too, but mm -hmm. during years of very little fire, people lose interest in fire. But then a very big fire year happens and everybody is very worried. But then they lose uh, interest very quickly. That has been my, my impression for many, many years. And the changes in society are very slow, I would say. But they are still there. I think young people, when I talk to very young people, they are very aware now that uh, this is a problem that has an underlying problem of climate change. And the actions that we have to, to do occur at very different levels, from the individual actions to the government actions. So Argentina is very, very slow also in complying with international treaties on emissions. Like many other countries in the world, they are very slow. I was going to say, it's not just Argentina. <laughs> so, yeah, my general feeling to answer your question is a, a little bit of frustration with the politicians, but with a lot of hope uh, of the new generations of young people. I bet you hope that you had been wrong in your choice of career. You know, if you go back 35 years and say, oh, I, I should have gone into something else. There's no fire here. They were right. <laughs> well, when I started biology, I am a bi biologist uh, as an undergrad. I was going to be a marine biologist. But I guess in marine biology, very similar things occur, too, to the marine biologists. They are now very, very worried about plastics. They're worried about warming, they are worried about acidification. So uh, everywhere you look at, there are problems. With such a dramatic increase in the fires there in Patagonia already, what solutions might there be to prevent these fires, to make the native forests more resilient or, you know, to ameliorate the situation? Yeah, there are many aspects that we can work on. After the fire, we can work on restoration, not necessarily to go back to the original condition, but to go into a new landscape that maybe is more resilient to the next fire. So we are thinking of things like reforesting or uh, doing restoration with species that are less flammable, that are more resilient to fire, uh, native species, I mean. So our species that are more adapted to warmer conditions. So we really have to assume that the conditions of the future are going to be different. We cannot have the romantic idea of going back to our 19th century landscape because it's, it's a romantic view which is not going to be very um, resilient to the future conditions. Thomas Kitzberger is a professor of ecology at the National University of Camagüey in Bariloche, Argentina. Thank you so much for taking this time with me today. I, I really enjoyed our chat. 
Oh, it was a pleasure, Dobby. Thank you very much for inviting me. Coming up, the warming climate is leading to increasing health problems for children. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks. We wanted to tell you about one of our sponsors for this episode, Inkle, an app that gives you unlocked access to the most reliable news sites. Between paywalls, fake news, clickbait, and bias, it can be really hard to keep up with the news for all sorts of reasons. But Inkle presents every story from multiple perspectives in order to counteract information bias. Plus, Inkle journalists scour through news from around the world to find stories you wouldn't normally see. They even have a good news section, when your regular news stream is getting a bit heavy. And they have a feature they call Dive Deeper, so helpful for research or seeing a story from other points of view. To get a year's worth of headache-free news for just $75, or about $1.44 a week, go to inkle.com earth to get 25% off your first year. With that, you can say goodbye to ads and paywalls. That's inkl.com earth. Try it today. You'll be glad you did. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Over the past three decades, excessive heat has been the number one weather killer in the U.S. And in Europe, some 35,000 people died during a blistering heat wave in 2003, mostly the elderly. And as the climate warms, infants, children, and adolescents are also facing increasing health risks, according to new research. Fortunately, children rarely die during heat waves. But scientists found emergency department visits for children at 47 U.S. hospitals went up almost 12 percent during the warmest months of the year studied. The research was published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, and its lead author is pediatrician Aaron Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein is the Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at Harvard, and he joins us now. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Great to be with you again, Steve. So what sorts of health issues were observed in your study? In other words, what's the primary reason for the emergency department visits? Some of the things we saw were entirely unsurprising. Heat-related illnesses, what we call heat exhaustion and heat stroke, go up with heat, and the hotter it gets, the more likely those visits are. But a lot of the other things might not be immediately obvious. And one good example of that are certain kinds of bacterial infections. So we saw greater visits for bacterial intestinal infections. You're talking about an, you know, glorified upset tummy or diarrhea? What are we talking about? Yeah, so these are bacteria that often are on food, spoiled food, that cause diarrhea and vomiting and you can imagine that in warmer months, people are more likely to have a picnic, let food spoil, you know, you don't fully cook the hamburger on the grill. And we also know that warmer temperatures promote bacterial growth. Now, one of the things that is important to note here is that we see stark differences in rates of visits based upon whether a child had private insurance or public insurance and whether they were a white child or a racial or ethnic minority child. And those differences reflect what we know, which is that many children who are either on public insurance or of a minority status are more likely to use an emergency department in general because they lack access to the primary care offices and other resources that might prevent them from being seen. So we saw that with the bacterial intestinal infections. We saw it, in fact, in many other of the conditions that we saw increased rates for, including things like, you know, ear infections and skin infections. Interestingly, we also find that, you know, injuries and poisonings are more likely with higher temperatures as well. So we find a, a suite of effects, and often we see greater rates of visits for minority children. Which illnesses were you most 
surprised to see show up in your study of the heat effects on, on children? The one that surprised me the most was that we saw increased rates of visits for blood and immune system disorders. That's a pretty broad group of, of conditions. You, some of them are things like anemia, so not having enough red blood cells. That includes things like immunodeficiencies. Heat isn't causing immunodeficiencies, but children with immunodeficiencies are probably more at risk for those same infections we were talking about before. But this is a finding that I think really warrants some further investigation because I have a pretty good mind as to how we would see more ear infections or more bacterial intestine infections, more skin infections, more accidents, you know, greater visits for children with diabetes. But I'm not sure I really understand this piece. And if it turns out that there is some way in which heat is affecting risk for those children, that would be something that I think is potentially new and concerning. So I think that was perhaps among the more surprising findings for me. Now, what about mental and behavioral health? So if you look at the whole population of children in our study, we didn't see a significant effect of heat on those conditions, although it was very close. But when we divided the group of kids into white children and children of minority status, there is an effect and a substantial one. And the children who are, you know, Latino, Black American, Asian American, etc., are much more likely to show up in emergency departments for those problems. Do I think that's because white children aren't getting those effects from the heat? No. I think it's because white children have better access to care. And this is what I mean when I talk about the effects of heat amplifying the inequities we see. So Ari, what should parents and, and other caretakers of young people think about when it comes to heat? Well, I think the first is, is that when it gets warm outside, you should definitely, if you can, have your child playing outside. <laughs> This is not a study to say, let's be worried about the heat generically. This is a study that tells us that, you know, heat does matter to children. It especially matters to children with certain chronic medical problems. And that, you know, with that knowledge, we can do stuff to make sure that our children can play outside when it's hot out safely. And a good question of a parent is, well, what is too hot? And the answer is, well, it depends on where you live because 80 degrees in Boston is not 80 degrees in San Antonio. What really matters is the percentile of temperature. How hot is today as compared to the usual? And fortunately, there are more resources that are coming online to give parents and providers that information. We're starting to see heat forecasts that tell you, you know, this day is going to be in the 85th percentile of temperature, which is a signal to those people who are at risk. You should be mindful of, of those heat concerns, maybe offset your activities, maybe make sure you're well hydrated, or, or whatever the reasonable action is. So what can your study teach us about ways to provide better health care access to children and teens? Yeah, well, the first thing is it underscores a whole body of work that says we absolutely need to provide better health care to the least fortunate children in our country. I mean, children on public insurance uniformly at higher rates of ED visitation. That reflects the broader trend that those children do not have access to primary care, the reasons they often do not are because of insurance and that in many places, many providers do not take public insurance and or that those children are maybe more likely to move and move from one place to another and having established primary care is harder. But, you know, if we had access to health care for any child, the barriers to access are much less. And that makes it so that Whatever conditions the child may have that may put them at risk for heat-related illness are addressed. It means that if a parent is concerned, they can call that office, get some guidance before the kid lands up in an emergency department. And I think that's one of the key messages that we see in this study about what it means more broadly for the healthcare system. Aaron Bernstein is a pediatrician and interim chair of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Bernstein, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Nice to be with you as always, Steve. Well, it's that time in the show again for a trip beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. What do you have for us today? Well, hi, Bobby. There's an investigation that found possible evidence of PFAS in workout gear and yoga pants. 
Mm. And PFAS chemicals, I mean, those are called forever chemicals. They can live in the body for a long, long time and cause a lot of health concerns, including cancer, from what I understand. There's strong indications that they're a cancer risk. I should say up top, this study was published and partially funded by my organization, ehn.org. EHN partnered with a health-based website called Mamavation, and Mamavation tested activewear and found levels of fluorine, which is in turn an indicator of toxic PFAS chemicals that went up to 284 parts per million. They tested 32 different kinds of activewear and yoga pants, and eight had detectable levels out of a total of 32. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, leggings and, and yoga pants have sort of become the uniform of people who work from home and, you know, don't have to go to an office anymore. This is pretty bad news. Oh, I'm never seen without my yoga pants. But um, <laughs> not, that's, that's a joke, folks. <laughs> well, that, that's certainly bad news. What else do you have for us this week? We're going to go to the tar sands of Alberta and a plant downstream from the tar sands, actually in Saskatchewan that is intended to be a carbon capture and storage facility, taking those tar sands absolutely loaded with greenhouse gases. And uh, right now, in a study by the NGO Global Witness, that plant was found to have removed 5 million tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. That sounds kind of impressive, but what Global Witness found is that it took 7.5 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions to save 5 million. Not a very healthy ratio. So it costs 2.5 million tons then of greenhouse gas emissions to run this facility. Doesn't seem like a very good deal. Yeah, it sounds like one step forward and two steps back. And out of that 7.5 million tons of emissions from the carbon capture facility, much of it is methane. Methane is 80 times the warming power of uh, carbon dioxide during the first 20 years of methane's uh, existence in the atmosphere. And it accounts for about one quarter of all man-made emissions impacts on our climate. Hmm. Well, this carbon capture storage facility in Canada, I mean, it's not the only one in the world. There's plenty of these all over the place, including the United States, of course. Do we have any idea if it's a similar scenario in other facilities? You know, one step forward, two steps back, as you say. Well, there have been similar failures. There's the Kemper facility, which uh, about five years ago collapsed under the burden of $5 billion expenditure and little to show for it. Around the same time, there was a Department of Energy project in the state of Illinois that was suspended after going $2 billion in the hole in attempting to uh, make carbon capture work. It's even working its way into the current budget impasse between the Republicans, the Democrats, and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who, while opposing some of what's in the Build Back Better bill, wants to include carbon capture and storage, something that he feels would help prop up the coal industry in West Virginia. Well, maybe somebody should send Senator Manchin this report and see if, you know, maybe we'll turn things around in the future here. A little too late to send him a lump of coal for Christmas. (laughs) Well, what do you have for us from the history books this week? Also dealing with carbon capture storage, on January 24th, the president at the time was George W. Bush. He spoke in Charleston, West Virginia, and told the West Virginians eager to hear good news about the suffering coal industry, that carbon capture storage is part of his future. And this is what he said, in order to become less dependent on foreign sources of energy. We've got to find and produce more energy at home, including coal. I believe that we can have coal production and enhanced technologies in order to make sure that the coal burns cleaner. I believe we can have both. 20 years later, carbon capture storage is nowhere with a lot of money spent on efforts to make it happen. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website and a picture of Peter Dykstra in those leggings that he promised. No, there isn't. Oh, come on. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you soon, Peter. Thanks a lot, Bobby. Talk to you soon. 
Not all siblings are born equal. Living on Earth's explorer and residence Mark Seth Lender watched his local osprey nest. Three young osprey move about. They are tired of the nest, its narrow world, their portion of confinement these long months. It has not rained, and it will not rain. Only the saturated heat of August pours down full force, even at this early hour. The sun clears the tree line. Discomfort grows. Perhaps that is the ultimate stimulus. It is a rustic show, flapping and slapping ungainly. They sideslip and bounce and stumble, hardly an act of grace, when more than anything grace is what they need. And then by accident and for an instant only, up! And so it begins. Gravity in surcease, the surly bonds release, and in the instant every no is now. Yes, yes, what wings can do. They are a crowd before the main event, the performance late, and one and two and two and three and. The sisters are stronger, their wings broader, their heights are higher, their leaping is longer, born before their brother, female and by nature of greater heft and girth. They have matured, he has not. Those few days, such an advantage in that small head start. And one end, two end, gone. The sisters head off in opposite directions, their brother left behind. His thin chest, his scrawny legs inadequate in every way. The harder and faster he flaps, the more he founders. He cannot get the hang of it, and the effort tires him and only makes him more incapable. The sisters return. He continues. They watch him in his futility. Mid-afternoon, their father lands in the nest, a menhaden in his talons. The brother sits sunken into his shoulders. His mother looks at him. With her beak, she tears a small piece from the fish, turning her head sideways to make it easy for him she puts it into his mouth, then another, bit by bit, feeding him like a baby. The sisters stand aside, all of them, his mother, father, the two sisters, all of them want for him what they want for themselves, to fly, to live. That's Living on Earth's Explorer and Residence, Mark Seth Lander. Coming up, don't look up. We'll have a chat with climate scientist Michael Mann and his take on the hit Netflix movie Poking Fun at Climate Denial. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, SmeagolGuide.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate fiction just got a huge boost of star power with the film Don't Look Up. It's headlined by Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Tyler Perry, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, and Ariana Grande. It's about a pair of scientists who discover a massive planet-killing comet hurtling toward Earth with just six months until impact. They try to sound the alarm to get a distracted world and self-serving people in power to do something about it. In this scene, they are explaining the severity of the situation to a skeptical president of the United States. Madam President, this comet is what we call a planet killer. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So how certain is this? There's 100% certainty of impact. Please, don't say 100%. Can we just call it a potentially significant event? Yeah. Yes. But it isn't potentially going to happen. It is going to happen. Exactly. 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%. Call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. 
Of course, the comet is an allegory for climate change. And no spoilers here, but we do want to talk about the film's message and what it represents for some frustrated climate scientists. Joining me now is one such scientist. Michael Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Michael. Thank you, Steve. It's always good to be with you. So, Michael, this is a very dark film in one sense, but it's also intensely funny at times. How was the writer and director Adam McKay able to harness humor to talk about something as terrible as the climate crisis? Well, I think that's the challenge. And I'm a big fan of Adam McKay and and his films. They're just hilarious. And uh, David Sirota also had a hand in helping write the story. And I think that they really pulled it off, right, which is to both communicate the gravity of the threat, the underlying threat that we're really talking about. Of course, it's a metaphor for the climate crisis, even though it's framed as a comet that's about to strike Earth. But to do it in a way that, first of all, creates some distance, because there is so much ideological baggage now that people come into the climate discussion with. And so if you talk about climate sort of straight up, you're going to sort of lose some of your audience. Uh, you're going to raise their hackles. You know, climate change denial has become ideological among some. And so if you make it about something completely different, but the undertones and the message really are sort of informing their understanding, hopefully, of the climate crisis, then maybe you can get some people to listen, to open up their ears. As I like to say, the front door is bolted shut you know, climate change denial is a firm sort of part of the ideology of the American right today. So the the front door is closed. You can't just barge through with facts and figures. So you look for that side door. And, and I think humor and satire is that side door. And, that, and that's what they've done here. Yeah. You know, part of the issue is how do you avoid getting onto that slippery slope of urgency into doomism? How did How did this movie succeed in doing that? Yeah, and you, you've hit on, you know, the, the key point here. And this is a point that I, I emphasize in my recent book, The New Climate War, is, you know, the importance of communicating both the urgency, but at the same time, the agency, the fact that it's not too late to do something about the problem. And, you know, there is the danger that some people will come away from the film with the wrong message, because it's possible to come away from it and think, oh, wow, we're, we're doomed. That's really the message of this film. But that isn't the message if you sort of think more about how things unfold. And, and I don't want to sort of spoil the film for your listeners who haven't seen it yet. But suffice it to say that there was a path forward that was safe and reliable. And that's the path that wasn't taken, right? And so without giving it all away, if they had addressed this problem in the way that scientists said it needed to be addressed, then there was a real chance for for success. But instead, sort of they listened to the voices of tech billionaires, and that <laughs> led us down the wrong path. And, and that's, I think that's the critical message. There, we're at a juncture. There's the right path forward, and there's the wrong path forward. And, and the movie shows us what happens with the wrong path. Indeed. And the techno-billionaire they have there, what is this, a send-up of, is it Elon Musk? Am I looking <laughs> at Bill Gates? Am I looking at Jeff Bezos? Is it Mark Zuckerberg? Who am I looking at in this yes. character? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an amalgamation of all of those individuals. And you can literally see pieces of each of them in the character uh, the way that social media information that we provide is used for profiling and targeting us, that's in there. But to me, what was really significant was this idea that we can engineer our way out of the crisis. And to me, this was an extended metaphor or an allegory or whatever you want to talk about, uh, clearly for the climate crisis. And it was also communicating the dangers of sort of thinking that we can just invoke some techno-fix down the road as a way of sort of denying the actions that we need to take right now while we still can. I mean, they say that this comet could uh, make trillions of bucks for this guy, and essentially it's saying that people in these positions of power think it's worth risking the entire planet to get it out and bring it to market, kind of like the fossil fuel reserves that are sitting around that must stay in the ground if this planet is to remain habitable, huh? No, absolutely. This idea that we can continue to burn fossil fuels because, look, we will just find a techno fix down the road. Trust us. (laughs) 
So, you know, we hear a lot about geoengineering, and there are some scientists, and even Bill Gates is actually financing research into these massive planetary interventions, like shooting sulfur dioxide particles into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight to try to cool the planet back down. And the more you look into these potential interventions scientifically, the more you realize there are all sorts of potential unintended consequences. That's one fundamental problem. But even more problematic, I would say, from the standpoint of the politics and the policy, it provides a convenient argument for delay. It's a crutch for polluters who want to say, hey, look, we can solve this problem down the road. So let, let's continue to burn fossil fuels and generate economic growth because we'll figure out how to solve this problem later. Trust us. But <laughs> even some of the other seemingly more moderate geoengineering approaches like massive carbon capture, where we sort of suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere. Well, we're fighting the laws of, of thermodynamics and economics in trying to do that. It would be hugely expensive. It's unclear that it can be done at scale, but it's being used by some polluters, again, as this crutch. And we've got to cut our carbon emissions by 50% within this decade to avert catastrophic warming. We're not going to do that with new breakthrough technology. We can solve this problem using existing renewable energy. There are plenty of studies that demonstrate that. The obstacles aren't technological at this point. They're entirely political. It's really that simple. All right, Michael. So where, where do you think this allegory breaks down? And, and in your view, how well does it, does it work to get this message across, do you think? I think it works in the sense that it, it's so distant from the climate crisis that, like I said before, it doesn't come with that same ideological baggage. I would like to think we could all band together today, Republicans and Democrats alike, and agree that we need to do something about an imminent planet-killing comet, right? We would hopefully all, you know, band together. And the fact that we don't, that even with something as clear-cut as that, it devolves into politics and greed and and so all metaphors are imperfect by design. And, you know, this metaphor is imperfect in the sense that it's sort of a discrete event. We don't go off a cliff at three degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet. What we're doing instead is we're walking out onto this minefield. And the farther we walk out onto that minefield, the, the more danger we encounter. So there's an imperfect translation of, you know, the, the metaphor to the climate crisis. At the same time, we can say that, you know, three degrees Fahrenheit warming is really bad. A lot of bad things will happen if we exceed that amount of warming. It's something we really want to try to avoid at all cost. So the binary nature of the disaster isn't a perfect parallel with the climate crisis. But the idea that there are thresholds that we need to avoid and we need to take action now to avoid them translates reasonably well, I think. So, Michael, I've got to ask you this. I mean, to what extent do you envy the certainty that the scientists in this movie have about, you know, the discovery here is going to hit the planet in exactly six months and 14 days? Very convenient for them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an exact prediction that can be tested by a single event, right? Whereas climate science is a much more complex sort of science in the sense that it isn't just a single event that we're trying to predict. It is a massive number of unfolding events and amplified events and sometimes subtle linkages between the warming of the planet and all the various impacts that that is leading to. It's not quite as direct and immediate and acute as, you know, a comet that's about to strike us. And yet, when it comes to the bottom line, there's a remarkable similarity. It's that ideology has been used to divide us and to favor an agenda of inaction that, in the case of the film, costs us the entire planet. But in the case of climate change, if we fail to rise to the challenge, it will cost us a livable planet. Indeed. And, you know, the funny thing about the precision, though, back in the 1960s, ExxonMobil and those folks had a pretty good clue by the 70s and 80s, their predictions are playing pretty much right out to where CO2 levels and temperatures are these days. 
You're absolutely right, Steve. It's, it's, it is remarkable that, you know, when we talk about all the different impacts of climate change, that gets into subtleties and complexities. But if we just stand back and look at the big picture, the warming of the planet, it's actually exactly as was predicted a half century ago by none other than ExxonMobil, the world's largest publicly traded fossil fuel company. Their own scientists successfully predicted both the rise in carbon dioxide concentrations if we remained addicted to fossil fuels, the rise that we would see by now, and the warming that that would cause. And so even as ExxonMobil's PR apparatus was attacking independent climate scientists and attacking climate science publicly, their own scientists <laughs> were delivering the same fairly precise message. Hey, by the way, Michael, I, you have a connection to this film, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of funny. So I, I would have liked to have attended the premiere. I was uh, invited to attend it, but uh, the logistics of making it to New York City made that, uh, you know, in the era of COVID, made that really difficult. And my, my daughter was was very disappointed because she was looking forward to uh, attending it with me in, in New York City. So and instead, uh, the Netflix folks were nice enough to send us a link so we could watch the film in, in advance in the comfort of our home. And so we're watching this film and I don't know, maybe it's 30 minutes into it or so as we're meeting, you know, we're getting to know Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Dr. Mindy, the astronomer uh, who's, uh, you know, who's graduate student uh, really, and he have discovered this comet. And Leo's, you know, mannerisms and just the way he speaks, my daughter said to me, I think he's basing this on you. And I sort of <laughs> laughed that off. I mean, I, I've gotten to know Leonardo DiCaprio uh, pretty well. I've, you know, corresponded with him on a number of occasions, helped advise him on some projects. And, you know, at some level, we've sort of become friends. But I didn't really, it didn't occur to me that that might be the case. I sort of laughed that off until, I guess it was a couple of weeks later, uh, there was an interview with Leo that aired. And in it, he name-checked me when he was talking about sort of what inspired the, the character in the film. And I didn't know how to take that because if you watch the film, and again, I won't give it away, Leo's a flawed character. You know, in the end, you know, I would put him on the side of hero, but he's a flawed hero. And some of those flaws, I would hope, aren't commentaries on me specifically, especially the uh, marital infidelity. Uh, that, uh, my, my wife sort of looked at me askance as, as soon as, uh, you know, that connection was made. So, you know, I think what, what Leo was trying to embrace was the frustration that we climate scientists feel in trying to communicate this this threat to you know the public but facing this massive headwind of misinformation and and sort of the way that the the media often doesn't really treat these issues with the seriousness and and the urgency that some might hope of course living on earth being the obvious exception to that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had to laugh out loud at some of those TV sequences because, you know, network TV will frequently, yeah, if they brought on a serious scientist, maybe the next thing is, you know, a dancing chimp or something. Right. They just <laughs> But, and I do hope that the, that the character, Dr. Randall Mindy, wasn't entirely based on you because, you know, at one point he gets so frustrated with the lack of urgency that's being seen he absolutely loses it and has a meltdown on live <laughs> television in this film and 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 also the jennifer lawrence character has a similar situation yeah. i guess you've probably never really melted down like that on <laughs> television but but how close have you come yeah, you know, I think he goes through this sort of rapid media training. They recognize he's going to be um, doing the media circuit, and so they sort of try to train him. But he goes off script at, at one point and does have this meltdown. And uh, suffice it to say that I think all of us who are climate scientists but have also engaged in efforts to communicate the science at one time or another have experienced some of the same frustrations, but we've resisted at least uh, heretofore, <laughs> thus far, <laughs> so far it hasn't happened uh, to me, an on-air meltdown. But I, I thought that it was a clever way of just saying, look, people, <laughs> we have to confront that this really is a crisis. We can't continue to tiptoe around it and, and treat it as if it's just part of the entertainment ecosystem. This isn't just about entertainment uh, in communication. It, it's about 
you know, addressing the greatest threat that we as a civilization have addressed. And in the movie, it's a comet. In the real world, it's the climate crisis. And uh, before you go, Michael, comment on the title of the film. Don't Look Up. Well, you know, Don't Look Up is what the inactivists, as I call them in the new climate war, the forces of inaction, polluters and those promoting their agenda, politicians and uh, front groups and conservative media outlets, they don't want us to look up. Something that's plainly evident, all we have to do is use our two eyes and we would see it. Well, that's true with the climate crisis, isn't it? We're watching it play out in real time now in the form of these unprecedented extreme weather disasters. All we have to do is just look out uh, what's happening. And so I think that's the commentary. And of course, there's the movement that arises among the denialists in the film. Don't look up. Don't, you know, don't open your eyes. Pay no attention to these massive costly weather disasters that are playing out now in real time. That's sort of what the forces of climate inaction are telling us. Michael Mann is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State. His latest book is called The New Climate War. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Wilma Beltran, Iris Chen, Jenny Doring, Mark Couch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitas, Jake Rigo, Teresa Shi, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Larish-Dean composed our themes. Special thanks this week to Destination Wildlife. You can hear us anytime at LOV.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us please on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Bobby Bascom. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.